nowadays, uh, praying for and with people um, is one of the great gifts of my life. <laughs> one of my favorite parts of my week is always when I'm having coffee with somebody or I'm on the phone with someone or increasingly by text because of life in 2018. Um, someone asks for prayer and I get to pray for them and with them about what is happening in their life. There are moments when I feel an extraordinary depth of relationship and connection both with that person or those people and with God where I have this sense in my body that something real and important is happening, where I feel like there is something we have to offer as the church that is different from what um, a, a nonprofit or a human services agency would have to offer in the same situation, something that is powerful and good. And, <laughs> and, there's a lot about prayer that I still find very hard to understand and very hard to live with. And that's been true from day one. Many of you know that I was a convert to Christianity. Um, and in the first years of conversion, of becoming a part of a new faith, I think this is probably true of most faiths, but it's especially true of ours. Um, there are a lot of paradoxes and weird things to get used to. <laughs> Just a lot of strange stuff. And for me, uh, that process of conversion was a real wrestling one where I was not gonna accept anything into my life until I had really like heard every possible explanation for it, every possible way of being in it, and really torn it apart and decided that it was real for me. Um, and I could get on board with some dude coming back to life from the dead, right? That was a biggie. I got there, right? Like, I got convinced. I could get on board with, for some reason, this book full of over 60 stories from dozens of authors from thousands of years ago is special and different. I got on board. There came a time when that made sense to me. Um, that singing with other people with our hands up and tears on our face was not something to be embarrassed by, but something to be moved by, I eventually could get on board. <laughs> there were all kinds of things that I changed my mind about as I became a person of faith that started to make sense to me that hadn't before. Prayer was the very last holdout. <laughs> When all of those things had started to make sense, when the resurrection had started to make sense, when a God who I could not see started to make sense, prayer in many ways still didn't. And it's for the same reason, I think, that this scripture has proven to be one of the most inspiring in our tradition. A lot of people hold this really close in their heart, write it down, put it in their wallet. This it's not quite as uh, frequently highlighted in the online Bibles as Philippians. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but it's definitely top five or top ten. One of the most highlighted, most read verses in all of the online Bibles, right? Most cherished. The reason I couldn't get on board with prayer was the same reason that this scripture is both one of the most popular and one of the most deeply painful that Christians ever encounter. And that's because in our actual lived experience, in what happens to us and what we see happen to others, it is sometimes true that asking and seeking and knocking lead us to where we want to go. And it is sometimes true that we ask for an egg and get one. But it is also sometimes true that our lives are filled with scorpions. <laughs> it is also sometimes true that the door doesn't open or we open it and what's behind it is terrible. 
right? This is why prayer is confusing. <laughs> this is why prayer is not simple. This is why so many of us find ourselves befuddled by both this passage and the idea of prayer in general is that it doesn't actually seem to work like that <laughs> if we take into account what really happens in our lives and what really happens in the lives of the people that we watch and the people that we love and the people that we care for. If you are someone who only knows people whose prayers have always been answered in exactly the way that they hoped and expected and in ways that were fair and just, I would really like to hear that story later because <laughs> I have never met that person before. And that was my deal with prayer is that um, on the one hand, it felt almost cruel to believe that prayer was powerful and real because I had friends who had gone through traumatic experiences, who were ill, who were good people that bad things had happened to, and they had prayed for those bad things to not happen, and they had happened anyway. And so if I believed in prayer, part of me felt like, what am I saying to them about what happened there? But on the other hand, I was a big believer in sort of uh, try things until you understand them, right? So even though I didn't understand prayer, I was kind of giving it a try and giving it a go and, and incorporating it more into my life. I could feel the ways that it changed me. <laughs> Praying regularly changed my relationship with God. I felt this renewed sense of intimacy and love. I felt different. I felt like I acted differently when I prayed more frequently. I felt more connected to people. I felt like I became more of the version of myself that I hoped to be. And prayer really changed my relationships with other people. The more that I prayed for them, the less of a jerk I was to them. And also the more ways I found to be helpful to them. And those seemed like really good things. And they just existed at the exact same time as all of these prayers that didn't work out how it seemed would be fair for things to work out. We live in a world that is broken and prayer changes things. This is the difficulty of figuring out what it means to ask for things when we pray to God. And so as we think about this passage, as we think about the role of prayer in our lives, I wanna offer a little bit of how in my life I have processed that paradox of the places where I see um, the continued suffering of the world, the continued hardship of the world to, to, to be, to come to light, to be explained. And then talk to you a little bit about why I pray anyway. <laughs> why I think it's worth it, why I think it's powerful, why I think it's filled with grace. Um, and see what that might mean for all of us. So when I think about the things in the world that make me confused about prayer, I think about suffering, and I think particularly about suffering that seems just like so unrelated to who a person is or what they've done, and particularly big communal suffering as well as individual suffering, right? These whole systems of injustice and then these personal experiences of harm. And the first reason I think some of those things happen uh, has actually been the, the easiest one for me to understand. Many folks say that the, um, the problem of evil is the biggest problem of the universe. Evil, I can sort of wrap my mind around because for me, I think evil is um, harm, our ability to harm each other, our desire to harm each other, the fact that we continue to do it, both at the community level and at the, the individual level. Um, seems to come sort of inevitably from any God who gives us freedom. If we have the freedom to choose, we have the freedom to harm, right? There's no way to have a world that's free 
of harm and evil and injustice unless we also have a world that's free of choice and individuality and living a life that is not entirely preordained like an automaton or a robot from God. If we have choice, we have bad choices. <laughs> and so I think uh, often when I think about the suffering that results from evil and harm um, at any level, both from the ways in which I'm snarky and mean to my neighbor, to the ways in which whole nations have perpetrated abuse on whole other nations, um, I think a lot about the fact that the only way to avoid that would be to be unfree. And so there's something about us making choices together, us trying to make better choices together, that's a part of being a created being. In the second creation story, Genesis 2 through 4, known to you guys as Adam and Eve, right? Um, I think there's a reason why, as, as the people were trying to explain from the depths of the Holy Spirit the nature of existence, they called the tree that Adam and Eve ate from not the tree of evil, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because it's the fact that we have a choice that's the real problem. <laughs> that's the real issue. So that, to me, has been one of the ways in which I've interpreted suffering and injustice in the world, is that when we experience injustice, God is on the side of the marginalized. God is on the side of the harmed. God is on our side when we are victims. God is on the side of those we victimized when we victimize, right? When we're Egyptians. That, that God meets us in our weeping and our pain because that was who Jesus was, right? On the side of a lot of bad, broad deals. Um, but that somehow we don't get freedom without that. It's the second thing that's been much harder for me, which is not actually evil, which I get because I feel within myself both the impulse to harm and the impulse to not harm. So like evil I can sort of understand. The part that's hard for me to understand is sickness and death that seem to not come from anybody's choice. <laughs> they don't come from any bad place. They don't come from anyone doing anything wrong. They just kind of come along and cause all of this suffering to us and to the people who we have to watch um, go through. This, the fact that nature deteriorates and decays, right? Um, that I have found much, much harder to deal with when I've prayed at people's deathbeds or for the cessation of pain from people who, who experience chronic pain. How can this be a part of the creation of a good and just and loving God who in other parts of my life I feel like I know so well? And there I turn to the first creation story, to Genesis 1, um, which has become a real source of faith for me over the years that... Uh, before the parts we remember, <laughs> where God makes light and dark, and God makes sun and moon, and God makes earth and sea, and God makes swimming creatures, and rustling creatures, and it says uh, creatures that slide across the ground. You know, I, I may have disagreed on the efficacy of creating those creatures, but God knows better than I. Um, before any of that happens, there was something there, which was chaos and the void. It says that there was a chaos and a darkness that God sent God's breath, God's ruach, God's breath over. And that breath made some kind of order and creation out of chaos. But chaos never truly goes away. When you read the Psalms or if you read Job, you read these deep evocations of chaos as a many-headed monster who lives in the sea, <laughs> or this force that constantly makes itself known in our lives, that there is this kind of force in the universe that isn't good 
isn't bad, but it is sort of destructive. <laughs> it's entropy. It's that it's in the nature of things to deteriorate and to fall apart that nothing lasts forever besides God the eternal. That's baked into the universe and the creation equation. And to some of you, that might not feel comforting. <laughs> I don't know. But to me, it has really helped to have this sense that there is something at work in the universe that means things break down that has no moral quality in particular. That our minds and our bodies don't last forever, that the nature of the environment doesn't last forever. And so it is also a fight for goodness and for God and for love and for um, one another when we engage in the healing arts and the healing practices and become doctors and get matched. <laughs> when we show up for one another with food and with comfort in those times that sometimes things just do happen. And that's a part of what it means to be a created person. And the third thing that I think leads to some of this harm um, is mystery, the stuff that we're never going to explain, the stuff we're never going to get our heads around, or our hands around, or our hearts around, that there's something mysterious to the quality of being alive in the universe, um, and explanation and rationality aren't always going to be the way to handle it. Sometimes the way to enter into a world that we don't understand is to embrace our non-understanding and say, I have to live anyway. <laughs> I've got this body, I've got this soul, I've got this mind, I've got this heart, I have to move forward. And if there are parts of it that are mysterious to me, that may always be mysterious to me, better I enter into the mystery than simply rage against it and hope for an explanation forever. None of those feel completely satisfying, but they're how I live with and process the harm and the pain of the world. And it's really important to me to have those things because I have those things as opposed to some of the other explanations we have been offered throughout church history that I think are neither commensurate with God nor with the witness of the Holy Scriptures nor with basic humanity. <laughs> and so here are a couple of the things that I am just gonna definitively declare aren't true, which I do rarely. <laughs> it is not true that God gives you bad things to see how much you can handle. It's just not true. That's not what God is like. If God was like that, I wouldn't refuse to worship God. God does not look at a life and say, hmm, I wonder if we've tipped them over the edge yet, right? This is not a way that God thinks about your precious, wondrous, wild, single life. God does not give you a bad thing because God is the best three-dimensional chess player in the world and knows that 12 steps down the road, it's going to lead to like the new saving of the earth being born. God doesn't give you crap because it always has a purpose and it always has a reason. God loves you. God adores you. God cherishes you. God isn't playing around with life with a set of dice. Bad things sometimes happen. That doesn't mean that God is sitting in the wings, right, doing this with her fingers, seeing what will come next. Now, is it true that sometimes good and great things can come out of bad experiences? Absolutely. I'm someone who, when I look at some of the hardest moments in my life, I do say, if I could go back and just pluck that out of my history, I wouldn't, right? It made me who I was. 
I've walked with many people who, um, from near-death experiences or experiences of pain and injustice, have found themselves or wisdom or new intimacy with God that they wouldn't give up for the world. But what that doesn't mean is that God is creating some kind of calculus where God gives you the bad thing to get the good thing. It's that God is such an everlasting wellspring of good, of wisdom, of love, of greatness, and of glory, that even when the worst things happen to us and happen to the world, that doesn't mean that life can't be drawn right out of them. Even when the worst things happen to us, it doesn't mean that some source of resurrection can't be pulled out by the forces of continuing life and continuing thriving and continuing flourishing that we feel in our very bones and our muscles and the world, right? That we see every time a flower comes up through the concrete or comes up through the snow and life says, nah, you still can't get me. (laughs) There is profound life to be found in profound harm and death, but it's not a one-for-one trade. And I think thinking about it that way not only can cause us harm because then we start to believe in a God who punishes us willy-nilly, which is a hard God to trust and a hard God to love, and it sets us up to not be able to have a long-term intimacy with God, but also um, it sets us up to not understand what was happening with Jesus. I think a big reason that a lot of us believe in that kind of like one-for-one, tit-for-tat, this is how the world works, is because that's how we were taught about the story of Jesus Christ. That Jesus was sent to earth because we had built up in the giant uh, accounting book of sin enough of a debt that it required X pints of blood, right? I mean, this is literally how some people will talk about it. And so Jesus paid it all. Um, And that kind of one for one just doesn't match any God who I know who's been in my life. The way that I think about Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection is that Jesus came to do what Jesus said Jesus came to do, which is to announce the kingdom and to bring it into our lives. (laughs) That Jesus said, there is an extraordinary thing that I want you to be a part of that is full of justice and love, and guess what? You kind of already live there, (laughs) and I am already a part of it, and I want you to be a part of it, and here's how we can live together. We can live together in peace. We can live together praying for our enemies. We can live together throwing over the tables and finding a new way to worship. And we heard all of that, and we found that so deeply frightening and scary and upending and awful that we might have to change who we were and change how the world works, that we killed him. I think thinking of the point as this inevitable destruction both actually releases us from too much responsibility. It makes us not willing enough to face how resistant we are to justice and love. And it reduces God's power Because instead of saying, even if things go that badly, even if things go that wrong, even if I send myself to you and you kill me, I will come back for you. It turns into this one-for-one equation, but it's so much better than that. It's so much better than that. It's God saying, you can do the very worst thing, and you still can't stop me. (laughs) Still can't stop life. Still can't stop hope. So, paradox of prayer. Are there going to be times when we pray and we are bitterly disappointed? Yes. Are there going to be times when we pray 
and the world continues to be its broken self? Yes. Is praying worth it anyway? Does it continue to hold power? I think the answer is still yes. And let's think about what the scripture says. It says, ask, seek, knock, and the Holy Spirit will be given to you. Not ask, seek, knock, and it'll all work out fine. You won the Jesus lottery, right? Like, ask, seek, knock, and the Holy Spirit will be a part of your life. Ask, seek, knock, and doors will be opened. What is behind them might not be what you expected. <laughs> and when it talks about this neighbor that you're bothering, right, which worst neighbor ever, right? Waking up in the middle of midnight, no, give me bread, give me bread, give me bread, um, just until you give up. Often in English translations, we, we um, see that translated as persistent, persistent prayer. And persistence is good. I think persistence is part of what it's getting at. But the original word is much closer to shameless. Be shameless in your prayer. Be so unashamed of having needs and wants that you continue to yell at them yell about them to God all day long if you need to. <laughs> be so shameless in your expectation that the world be better than it seems like it can be, that you continue to knock on God's door even when that door has not been opened a hundred times before. <laughs> continue to be so shameless in your expectation of how much God cares about you and who God really is that you continue to ask and seek and knock even when logic and rationality and personal experience might tell you not to. And I can't tell you why it works, and I can't tell you why it works that way or how it works that way. All I can tell you is that that is what has happened to me and every person of faith that I've known. <laughs> that when we ask and seek and knock and when we are persistent and when we are shameless, something inside of us changes and we begin to believe that maybe, yes, God cares about us that much. Maybe, yes, the promise of the kingdom is that true. Maybe, yes, God is that big and mysterious and intimately and deeply involved in our lives. All of God's favorite people. I always say, if you are mad in prayer, sad in prayer, or confused in prayer, all of God's favorite people from the Hebrew Bible are the ones that fought with him the most, right? Let's think about our Abrahams. Let's think about our Moseses. Let's think about our psalmists. Are these people who got exactly what they wanted when they asked God for it? Mm-mm. Are they people who every time they came to God said, ah, oh, Father God, oh, thank you. Here's my list. No, they were like, God, get on board. Give me quail from the air. Give me what I want. Stop making me do this crap. Don't kill all those people in Sodom, right? Like they are yelling at God. They are saying to God, I demand of you that you be who I wish you would be. And sometimes they're wrong and dumb, and sometimes they're great, and God is like, good job, buddy. <laughs> right? Like, way to challenge me on things I needed to be challenged on. Demand of God more than you think you and God are worth. <laughs> Demand of God more than the world has taught you. And that kind of prayer life will change you and change your spirituality. And I think, yes, sometimes, because I have seen miracles happen, change the world. And if you're ever worried because your prayers haven't been answered, know that you are in the best company of all because the same thing happened to Jesus. <laughs> Throughout the book of Luke, Jesus is praying all the time. He's constantly going away to pray. That's why they ask him to teach them how to pray, and he comes up with this scripture. And towards the end of the book, he says to Peter, um, before, so he says to Peter, I have prayed that you will not fail in your faith. Jesus, right, like, 
good guy, good dude, we think God's on board with Jesus, I pray that you will not fail in your faith. Uh, what, did anybody remember what Peter does immediately after Jesus is captured? Fail in his faith, no less than three times. <laughs> um, right? He, he's a big old failure, despite the fact that Jesus has prayed for him. But, 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 is it really a failure if after the failure, he doesn't give up? Is it really a failure if after the failure, after he becomes cognizant <laughs> that Jesus has prayed for me to not mess up in this way and I still did, he doesn't give up on the enterprise. He keeps following, he keeps trying, he keeps trying to turn around, he keeps trying to pray, he's trying to start churches, keeps messing up, Peter's not perfect. <laughs> if it is true of Jesus' prayers, how much more is it true of ours? That we should remain persistent, shameless, loving, and committed knowing that there is always going to be mystery and there's always going to be harm and there's always going to be injustice and there's always going to be a God who adores and loves us and who we have been given the power to reach out to directly in a relationship filled with every emotion that we have ever had. So let's do that and see what happens. See what happens to us as people and see what happens to us as a community. I really believe it could change us. And so let us pray. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.